Ephesians chapter 4. We've spent quite a few weeks on these first, actually these first six verses, uh, five verses of Ephesians 4. This morning, I don't know how far we'll get into our text in verse 6, but this morning I want to begin with a strong argument and defense of biblical unity once again. I believe it is so important for God's people. And I believe it's a subject, a divine subject, which has been neglected for so long, and that it's a stranger to a lot of Christians. And so therefore this morning I want to begin with verse 6 of chapter 4, but I want to begin with a strong argument and a defense for biblical unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, let me just read this one. Let me begin in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and our text, one God and Father of all. Listen to this. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Let's pray. Father, bless your word, I pray, and help me, dear God, this morning to preach this truth. Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit, help me, dear God, I pray that I would preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and that our hearts would be drawn unto you. And Lord, we'd be encouraged and excited to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in these troubling times. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come this morning to the very climax and pinnacle of Paul's exhortation to unity amongst the believers. And I believe the greatest motivation and incentive for every true believer to diligently endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For this seventh oneness, and there are seven of them, this seventh oneness, I believe, binds the previous six with a bond which cannot be broken or severed by neither men nor angels. It's the climax of what Paul has been speaking about since verse 1. It's almost like he's climbing the ladder. And he gets to the very top in verse 6, and he said, this is the most important reason why we as believers should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, for there is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He brings it back to the head of what he's talking about. He brings it back to God, the Father. He's already dealt with the Spirit. He's already dealt with the Lord. Now in verse 6, he brings it to the pinnacle, the climax. The greatest motivation to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, he brings it back to God and Father of all. Just listen to this majestic climax and the greatest incentive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One God and Father of all. Notice how he uses the word all in each one. Who is above all, through all, and in you all. This one verse, dearly beloved, unites and binds all six oneness. 
And it truly, if we understand what Paul is saying in these six verses, but especially in this latter verse of verse six, believe me, I believe with all my heart, it was, it would assuage and quench all quarrels and vain disputings which would threaten such unity of the Spirit. Paul is so serious about the unity of the believer here in chapter four of Ephesians that I believe this is the greatest exhortation to unity in the entire Word of God. And Paul is really beseeching the believers to take it seriously, the subject he's speaking on. He wants us to understand that it's all for the glory of God. Yet I fear too many believers misunderstand and greatly underestimate the true value and immeasurable significance Christ Himself places on the unity of the believers. Especially when we consider His high priestly prayer on the night before His crucifixion after spending His last evening personally instructing by word and by example, the love and self-sacrifice we should show as believers to one another. From John 13 to John 17, that entire, that entire chapter is there, 13 to 17, that entire evening our Lord was teaching the disciples by word and by example, this is how you must treat one another as I loved you. Washing their feet, giving them a new commandment that they should love one another and that they should strive to keep the unity amongst themselves. He spent that entire evening stressing the importance of unity amongst those who are believers. And in verse 17, or chapter 17 of John, he kind of puts it all together when he's pleading before the Father, interceding on behalf of all believers, that high priestly prayer. Verse 11, he says that they may be one as we are. Listen to his words. Verse 11, John 17, that they may be one. His disciples, all believers. How? As we are. Be one like us, Father. In verse 21, he says that they all may be one in chapter 17 of John, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. This is our Lord's high priestly prayer. Some consider John 17 to be the holy of holies of Scripture. The Father, where the Son is interceding on the behalf of all believers before the Father as our intercessor as our high priest. Three times. The third one, he says, that they may be one even as we are one. Three times in John chapter 17, our Lord intercedes on our behalf and asks, beseeches the Father that He might give us the spirit of unity, that we might be one as believers, as Christ is with the Father. Just consider that for a few minutes. And I think we'd all come to the conclusion how important and significant it is for Christ. I think it also proves how difficult such unity is if the Lord Himself must beseech the Father three times in that one chapter. It proves not only the great significance of it, but I believe it proves also the great difficulty of it. That the Son of God Himself must beseech the Father three times. Should it not weigh heavy on our hearts as Christians that we should strive to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace if our Lord would pray so much for that? Why is then unity amongst believers so little considered today? It seems like it's so easy for believers today to 
divide and have schisms and contentions. We don't consider it as being dangerous to the church. We don't consider it as being dishonoring to God. If we did, I think that we would be more, I think we would give more earnest, diligent in keeping the unity of the believers. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one, one, one. And then he comes down to the verse six and he said, this, this is the pinnacle of it all. There's one God and Father of all. Through all, in you all. If we truly understand and long to know more perfectly this threefold plea of our Lord and Savior before the Father, why then do we as believers give so little effort and diligence in keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? In all my years of being a pastor, this has been one of the most controversial and difficult subjects as pastoring, keeping unity and love between brothers and sisters. Even the psalmist said, it's not those that are strangers that troubled my conscience and my heart, so to say, not quoting this specifically, perfectly, but he said it was he who went up to the house of God with me. Should we not pay heed to what our Lord has prayed three times in John 17 and what he emphasized throughout John 13 to 17? Paul simply using the word endeavor proves this isn't an easy work. Because even as Christians, we get filled too much with ourselves and our opinions. We esteem ourselves too highly in our judgments. Peace comes at a great cost. You know that? You know what it costs you and I to have peace with God? You know who is our peace? You know what it cost Him for that? We now, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace cost the Lord Jesus Christ everything. And now Christ would exhort us to keep that peace. Too often, believers are too quick to seek divisions and schisms, quarrels and contentions. Never or hardly considering that in the light of eternity, listen to me, that in the light of eternity and in the face of Christ, such divisions and schisms are possibly insignificant and frivolous. If we would but consider things in the light of eternity and in the face of Christ before we would act, beloved, we'd have to come to the conclusion, is this even worth the contention? What honor and glory can it ever bring to God when Christians are not united in spirit? When Christians are not striving to keep that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, to prove their love to one another that the world might know that we are Christ's disciples. 
which our Lord Himself so expressed in the Gospel of John. That the Lord Himself three times in John would compare our unity to that of the Father and the Son. Do you know what their unity is? Have you ever considered that expression, that those words He spoke? That they might be one like we are one. How one is the Father with the Son and the Spirit with the Father and Son and so forth? How one are they? Does it not call on us to give our greatest endeavor to at least possess some of that unity that Christ has with the Father? Is it so insignificant in our eyes that we can easily divide and have schisms amongst one another? Is it so easy to break up the unity of the Spirit because of differences of opinions? I believe with all my heart this divine subject doesn't get as much attention as it should. Could that be what drove the Apostle John? Now consider this. Which drove the Apostle John even after receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. God kept him alive. He's the one that wrote the book of Revelations. Can you imagine all the visions John seen? Can you imagine the majesty and glory that John experienced when the Lord opened up to him the Revelations? But what was it that, that drove John in his latter days? What was it that drove John to get up in the pulpit supported by two brethren? What was the words John would say in his latter days? Not speak about the great revelations. He wouldn't speak about the beast in revelations or the incoming times or even the coming down of Jerusalem from heaven or even the coming of the Lord. But John would say, brethren, let us love one another. Why would that impress John? Above all the revelations he's seen. Why would John be so impressed with that truth of loving one another? Even though he knew such great revelations. Are we missing something as Christians in this day and age that we can so easily see God's people divided? Should we not think twice maybe three or four times before even speaking about divisions? Is there not some way that reconciliation can be sought in some manner? Peter said, how often should I forgive my brother? We know the text. Seven times a day. And the Lord said, no, 70 times seven, 490 times a day. I've never had to forgive somebody 490 times a day of you. It's almost like the Lord said, you should always be ready to forgive. It doesn't matter what it is. Endeavor. Endeavor, labor, strive, struggle. It's a military term. Why? Because it's not always easy. And it's not so much because of others. It's more so because of ourselves. It's not easy for us to play self in last. It's not easy for us to take our opinions and what we esteem important and put it below that of others. It's not easy for us to do that. But if we're going to keep the unity of spirit, that's what it's called on. In meekness, it says. In meekness, esteeming others better than yourselves. It's not an easy task. 
And I believe that's why the Lord prayed it or mentioned it three times in John 17, not only because of its significance, because it's not an easy task. It took the Son of God to pray it three times. I think we're all old enough here. I'm not saying that you're old, but we're old enough. We're getting up in that age to where we're really looking at life and really pondering what's really priority in life. All my struggles in life, everything I struggle to achieve or to do, we're getting to that point now to see what really is important in life. And most of us, if we're true believers, we know it's not in the physical things of this world. It's not in money. I sat yesterday, had to go to Brownwood, came back, stopped at all subs. My wife wanted to get something to drink. I seen this elderly lady get out of the broken up car and go inside the all subs and come out and sit on a empty crate that was outside the front door. And she sat down and opened up her cigarettes while she's shaking a little bit and took out a cigarette stub. I guess she doesn't have enough money to buy a lot of cigarettes, so she saves her stubs. She lit up that cigarette and then she took out took out these lottery tickets, stubs, whatever you call them. Started rubbing them off and I felt I felt sorry for her. Because I thought this is what she's hoping for. To win the big money. Money's the answer. Another guy come out and he had two lottery tickets in his hand. I mean it's Saturday. I guess they're all getting ready for the Saturday night drawing, I guess. And I thought, this is what people's looking forward to. This is what they think life's all about. This is what is priority in life. As you get older, especially as a Christian, you begin to understand that priorities in life are not the physical things so much as it is those things you can't buy. And there's nothing so precious to a believer next to Christ than the unity of one another as believers if we understand Scripture. I believe that's why John in his old age, in light of all those revelations, said this is what's greater than all the revelations. This is what you need to hear. This is what you need to concentrate on. Listen to me. An apostle over 90 years old, I'm going to tell you what's important. It's not the visions I had, though they're in God's Word and they're sufficient. They're important. Let me tell you what's important. You need to learn to love one another. Maybe that's why he refers to himself as the beloved in John. You know, he never mentions his name once in the Gospel of John. You ever notice that? He won't say his name once. He's called himself the beloved, he whom Christ loved. Never mentions his name once. Used to be called sons of thunder with his brother, remember? They're the ones who wanted to call down fire from heaven. John learned a valuable lesson. Christians today, some Christians... They act as though they wish they could call down fire from heaven and destroy people who don't believe or have the same opinions as they do, the wrath and the contention. And John said, let us call down fire. And the Lord said, you know not what spirit you are. I'm getting ahead of myself, but do you, do you know the first blood spilt? First blood spilt by man in the beginning of time. You know what it was? Brother killing brother. That evil task, that evil event was recorded in God's Word. In fact, John uses it in First John. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. He said, love one another. And the next verse, listen to this, is very careful. He said, love one another, not as Cain. He compared Cain's hateful 
I hate to use the word love, but he says, not as Cain, who murdered his brother. And why? Because his brother's works were righteous and his were evil. The first blood spilt in history of mankind was brother killing brother. And First John references that in us loving one another. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And there's no place in heaven for a murderer. The emphasis God's word puts on this. You know, they claim the, the epistles of First and Second John, Third John, they claim those are the holy of holies. Some say Ephesians. But they say First John, Second John, Third John is for mature Christians. A lot of the commentators from old said First John is for mature Christians. It's not for those newborn babes. It's not for those who are just beginning. It's those who've come to understand and know the things of Christ. It's for mature Christians. And what does he emphasize? Brotherly love. Lay down your life for your brethren. If you see your brother have a need and you give it not to him, what good are you doing for him? Love one another, not as Cain. What did John learn was most significant and essential in his older age? That he wanted to pass on to the next generation. The great revelations he received of the love of the brethren and the unity that Christ says that they might be one like us. It was John Calvin who said, listen to this, he said, innumerable offenses arise daily which might produce quarrels, particularly when we consider the extreme bitterness of man's natural temper. But Paul's exhortation is not for perfect harmony in mind, or opinion, but unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's not talking that we should be perfectly in mind of the same opinion. He says the unity of Spirit. We need to understand that because we're not going to be perfect in opinions. Maybe even convictions. You might want to celebrate one holy day or one holiday above what somebody else might not want to. You might want to preserve or keep the Lord's Supper this way, or another one might do it that way. Some prefer only wine. They think it's a sin if you have grape juice. Some say, no, you can't have wine. You can have grape juice, and it's going to be pure grape juice. One says believer's baptism. One says baby baptism. We can, we're going to have differences of opinion. Paul's not exhorting for that. He's, his exhortation is unity of spirit, and that in the bond of peace. True believers through Christ, in Christ, are not to follow their natural tempers. But we do. But like Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, talking about esteeming others better than themselves, he said, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. After he gets finished telling him, esteem others better than yourselves, look not every man on his own things, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. Which was what? He didn't look to his own things, he looked to those of others. What if unity of the Spirit comes at the cost of my opinions? Listen to me carefully, and don't misunderstand this, even my convictions. You say, wait a minute, we've got to have convictions. I'm not saying the essential doctrines, the essential truths. I mean convictions that have the right or the liberty to vary from somebody else's. But our natural tempers won't allow that. You've got to understand, my opinion I hold very highly. 
reading through Proverbs, well, actually Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs through my yearly Bible reading and ran into those verses that talk about contention, where it comes from, who starts it, and that we should go away from a man that's contentious and avoid those things. Why? Because that, that sows disunity, that sows schisms. You can't speak to an angry man. Oh, we need to have convictions. What kind of Christians are we without convictions? You've got to have convictions. But when we start holding our convictions as being supreme authority over others and that they must have the same convictions, and I'm not talking about the essentials of doctrine. I'm talking about convictions in general. That sows discord. That's why Paul rebuked the church at Corinth when he said, some of you say I'm Apollos, some of you say I'm Paul." What are you, babes in Christ? What are you, carnal? Christ wasn't divided. Why are you, why are you forming up in groups? We should much rather err on the side of grace than on judgment. Do you know that? If we are to give somebody our second, uh, the other cheek when they slap us, should we not give another brother our whole body? <laughs> If we're not to give, if we're, if we're to give a coat when somebody asks for one, give them two. Are we not to go even further for a brother? Sometimes I see Christians treating the lost better than they do their, their own brothers and sisters. That's a shame. They give them more leniency, more time. They're more patient. Makes you wonder. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Kind of humbles us when you read that, don't it? These words are not only a great encouragement, incentive to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, but beloved, listen to me, listen to me. It's a great source of comfort and hope against all those oppositions, both from within and without which might seek to threaten and destroy such endeavors. Don't be discouraged by endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit. You know what I found out? If you step in between two people that are <laughs> at odds, don't be surprised if some of the stone throwing gets you. Are you listening to me? Sometimes trying to initiate peace between two parties at opposite differences requires great sacrifice. Look what it cost the Lord. We are at enmities with God. He took the blow so we could have peace. Sometimes in our endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, we're going to get accused, abused. Judged, criticized, condemned. Here's our encouragement. There's one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. He's sovereign. His providence. He's in us. Great encouragement. 
we sang that song in um, Psalm 46, and that psalm is in your insert. Psalm 46, God is our refuge. Amen. Well, that verse 4 in Psalm 46 says this, God is in the midst of her, the city of God. Listen to this, God is in the midst of her. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. God is in the midst of her. Who? The city of God. The previous verse. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early. This sixth verse gives us great encouragement and hope when we try to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit because not everybody's going to agree with us. Herein lies the greatest encouragement and comfort for all those who sincerely and truly seek to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called and who endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that though all our endeavors grow weak and even fail, it is, listen to me, it is God himself who shall prevail in keeping his church from utter failure. Listen to me, it is God himself who shall prevail in keeping his church from utter failure. There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That's what Paul's saying. God is sovereign. It's providence. It's intimacy with this. God in you. You see, why is it so important? Well, not only did the Lord pray for it three times in John 17, but if you know anything about the history of God's church, there's been a countless divisions and schisms. Do you know that? If you know anything about church history. James even describes them as wars and fightings amongst you. Why are there wars and fightings amongst you? He's writing to Christians. Paul said bite and devour. <laughs> Terminologies he's using regarding Christians. If you know anything about church history, and I know a little bit, the church history is riddled with divisions and schisms. Why is she still standing? You know one of the amazing things about the Jewish nation, Jewish people? If you know anything about church history, and I'm going to hurry up here. You know what's amazing? It's amazing they're still here. Do you know that? you know anything about Jewish history? Not just what happened during the Second World War, but even before that. The Black Plague, a lot of Jews were in... in, in. Look at the, the history of Israel. The nation of Israel should be extinct. But they prosper. Do you know Israel is a land that's filled with natural minerals? More natural minerals than any country in the world? And it's recorded in God's Word. I'm not going to get into that aspect, but that was an interesting study. Even God's Word talks about oil being at Jacob's elbow and all this kind of stuff. But if you look at the tribes, look at the map of Israel, that's where they found the most abundance of oil. It was in God's Word. God's, why? They're God's people. They're God's people. They should have been extinct. Why are they not extinct? Because they're God's people. Why is the church still here? There's one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, in and all. That's why the church is still here. Nothing to do for any man. Nothing, not because of any man. Not because of any church. It's still here because God is the keeper and preserver of his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church, the Lord said. You know why we're still here? It had nothing to do with us because we are constantly dividing, fighting, and contending, biting, and devouring, not because of us. Because of him. 
we look around us this morning, we think, man, there's just so many, so few people here. And there are. A lot of people are out. But listen to me. Do you know how many churches, and I wish I would have pulled it up and printed it out, you know how many churches in the last three years have closed their doors in America? A lot of churches. You know how many pastors have quit because of discouragement and despair? A lot, and it's growing. We might be small. We might be out in a little, little bitty town. You tell somebody on the Internet, they'll say, where is Burkett? Why are we here? It's not because of any man. God keeps his church. One God and Father of all. Who is above all, through all, and in you all. God loves taking the small, weak things, the Bible says, and using them for his honor and glory. Calvin said something to this effect that God loves taking things that are broken and that appearance look insignificant and using it to glorify his name. It's not the number. It's the God that makes the difference. God is in the midst of her. That's what makes the city of God important. God is in our midst. That's the difference. If God were not in her midst, the God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all, keeping, preserving, and hold, helping her, the church of God would have long ago been torn asunder by her divisions and schisms. She could not have survived. But God is in her midst. You see, the Lord's Prayer has not been defeated when he prayed for that in John 17. It's not went unheard. You know why? Because God still has, like in the days of Elijah, he still has a remnant who long for this, pray for this, are willing to sacrifice everything but the truth for this because of God. For though we ever endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, beloved, it is to God we must look for strength and grace, not to our own endeavoring. Yes, we are to endeavor, but we must ever look to God who is one God and Father of all. Did we in our own strength confide <laughs> our striving would be losing? Let me tell you again, I reiterate this. In my 31 years of being a pastor, this subject has been one of the most controversial and most difficult I've ever had to preach and continue to preach in 31 years because people just hold their opinions too high. They esteem themselves too high. that they may be one even as we are. One God and Father, and I'll close with this, and I want to get into this a little bit more next week. I told you I wouldn't get too much into that text because it's really, really good what he's talking about. But he says God and Father. The word God in that text means supreme divinity. 
He's supreme divinity. He's supreme. But I like the Father because it's the same Father Paul uses in Romans when it says the Spirit of God enables us to say, Abba, Father. It's one in supreme divinity, but he's also a loving Father. And that loving Father who is supreme in divinity is of all, above all, through all. And here is the most important. I believe Paul just kind of put the hammer to it when he said, and in you all, therefore, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit because of God. He governs his and rules his church supremely, yet lovingly. So therefore, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Lord, your word. We thank you, Lord, so much for your working in us in spite of ourselves. Lord, I know, Father, Lord, your word three times in John expressed how you desired and longed that we would be one as the Father and you are. I pray that, Lord, this prayer would not go unheeded by us this morning. I pray that, Lord, it would be our humble prayer and our desire that, Father, we would find the courage and the strength to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, we know that our adversary, which is a nickname of accuser of the brethren, I know that, Father, Lord, he'll rise up, Lord, and he'll seek, Father, Lord, to hinder us in this endeavor. I pray that, Lord, you'd help us to be reminded of your word, that, Lord, in spite of all of that, there's one God and Father above all, of all, through all, and most important, in us all. Father, give us strength, we pray. Dear Lord, you prayed for this unity. Therefore, we know that, Father, through Christ, it can be achieved. Give us, Lord God, we pray, courage and strength and grace to endeavor to keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace against all odds. We love you and we thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.